Ecclesiastes 12, 9 through 14. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is the word of the Lord for our church and is given for our good. Well, thank you, Justin. Let's pray before we look at this concluding passage of the book of Ecclesiastes. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we thank you for the words of the preacher and the teaching of this book of Ecclesiastes. Father, we trust that through this book you have given to us wisdom. And as we have this encounter with wisdom, we are ultimately having an encounter with your Son, our Savior, Jesus, our elder brother and Lord. So through this last passage, would you open our eyes to understand wisdom more clearly and know and understand the hope that we have in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, Friday, just a couple of days ago, a scholar that I follow uh, from a distance, who is a church historian at Duke Divinity School, her name is Kate Bowler, she released an interview on GQ, a magazine I promise I don't have a subscription of. I found it through an aggregate online. But she's written a new book, and it's one that looks interesting. It's called No Cure for Being Human. Dr. Bowler is a scholar, really, of of North American Christianity, but she actually is a scholar of the self-help and uh, sort of productivity movement that exists in North America. And in this new book, she is unpacking the ways in which the productivity culture that we live in is much more like a religion than it is like genuine self-help. The book packs a bit of an extra punch because Dr. Bowler was uh, diagnosed with stage 4 colon cancer, and in the midst of dealing with, uh, you know, fighting colon cancer, she was able to find time to write this book. She's an incredibly, incredibly productive scholar who probably understands more productivity than most of us, and yet she's very critical of the productivity movement especially in light of her current diagnosis. And in the interview she gave to GQ, she says this, I guess that's why I am so interested in uncovering the assumptions underneath the self-help movement. Because I think some of the assumptions about our selfhood, about how we're made, and about what we are for, are deeply harmful to us. If we continue to promote these stories that we are the self-constituting work robots meant for invincibility and progress, we're going to find ourselves not just tired, but really confused about our limitations. Dr. Bowler goes on to say that part of the impetus for her book is that she wants to leave the world a better place. She wants to prevent burnout from her students and from others. She wants people to live a more meaningful life with more joy and more health, a life that is more honest. 
I think the interview is worth the read. You can find it online. And if you keep scrolling down, you can see the best new watches for under $200. <laughs> but I believe the interview, as I was reading it, felt so much like some of the wisdom that has come to us through this book of Ecclesiastes. There's certain assumptions about the ways in which this world works, the ways in which we can navigate this world where we believe we can kind of game the system. We can do life well. We can win at life. We can sort of live out all these life hacks and somehow we will get through the difficulties of life. And the book of Ecclesiastes has told us these approaches to life are deeply, deeply flawed. The world has a vaporous feel to it, whether you like it or not. And in the same way Dr. Bowler claims her new book is telling humanity we must learn to embrace our limitations if we were going to live a meaningful life, a life with more joy, I believe the book of Ecclesiastes is coming to almost the same conclusion. As the book concludes, the writer is going to talk about our limitations, especially those that are related to our intellectual pursuits, but also talk about the goal the ways in which we are to live, to live a meaningful and joy-filled life. So here's what I want to look at this morning. I want to first look at the perils of our intellectual pursuits, and then I want to look at the purpose of our intellectual pursuits. So first, let's look at the perils of our intellectual pursuits. Let me give you some thoughts about this passage. It's something like an epilogue to the words of the preacher that we've been looking at for so many weeks. We're expecting to hear the word vanity used again, this hevel word that we've seen throughout the book. And if you remember last week, it is chapter 12 verse, uh, chapter 11, um, sorry, chapter 12 verse 8 does use the word vanity. But a narrator has come along and does not want vanity to be the last word. This narrator could be the same person as the preacher who's sort of compiling this book and using the narrator as a way in which uh, to interact with the teaching of the preacher. It could be someone else. But the narrator's words start in verse 9. And the narrator commends the wisdom of the preacher. The narrator says, besides being wise, the preacher was hardworking, creative, even worked on his form. He had the goal of ensuring that wisdom was not just found, but that it was passed on to the people of God for many generations. This narrator kind of tells us that the, the preacher wasn't giving us the words we wanted to hear. He was like a shepherd giving us goads. His wisdom uh, was the goad, which was the, the kind of pointed stick that a shepherd would use to whip the, the sheep or the oxen to, to direct them down the path with which they were to walk. His words were like nails firmly fixed. The preacher's words had the goal not just of inflicting pain on us, but they had the goal of inflicting just enough pain to get us to cooperate. The preacher's words hurt, but they hurt to spur on our will in a healthy direction. The preacher's words were given to us to keep us away from foolish anger, but also from mocking laughter. And these words were not just uh, corrective words, but they're also words that are to lodge deep in our memory, like nails firmly fixed. They're the things that are to stick with us in this world that is like a puff of smoke, like a vapor. The narrator goes further. The words of wisdom, the narrator says, are ultimately the words from one shepherd. And if you look at at least the translation we're reading, that shepherd is given with a capital S because most people believe this is a reference to these words and this wisdom ultimately coming from God. But this high commendation that the narrator gives ends with this warning about the perils of our intellectual pursuits. 
You can see it in verse 12. Like a parent to a child, the narrator warns, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. Now, these are the type of ver- this is the type of verse the teenage student wants to memorize when they want to get out of their homework. <laughs> you may know that if you go to Graham Library at Trinity College at the University of Toronto, you'll see these words written on the ceiling as you sit down to read. People have wrestled through why these words are appended to the end of this book. Some of them have, people have made the case that these were words of warning to the people of Israel, not to chase down the wisdom of other cultures' philosophers and not to explore Greek philosophy later on. I'm not convinced of any of those conclusions. They seem all to be speculation. But what I am convinced of is that the narrator in this conclusion is telling us that to come to conclusions comparable to the preachers would require you to go on a venture so incredibly intense, you probably will never make it. His warning isn't that you shouldn't read books, that you shouldn't write books for that matter. No, this is not at all what his warning is about. But he's saying this, if you want to attempt to add to the preacher's wisdom, you better watch out because you're opening the door to a quest that is filled with unending trouble and work. I think we know something of this, because there's nothing that makes parents' eyes roll more than when their student returns back from first year university and hears about an intro to philosophy course, and hears about the way the philosophy professor has put their child's mind into a pretzel, and now their child is unsure if they exist, and they're unsure if they can ever really know anything, and the parent is wondering, is this what my tuition dollars are going towards? This this ending is telling us that, yes, philosophy is hard, and it's not a discipline that is to be ignored, but it it is a discipline that comes with a warning. There's a way to pursue questions the wrong way, which will lead you down a deep and dark hole. We do well to study the wisdom of the preacher found in the book of Ecclesiastes, and we would do well to make sure our students know this well as they go towards their intro to philosophy class. But the words of this narrator at the end are telling us that most of us don't have the strength. We don't have the fortitude to push through the vaporous nature of human life, to explore these questions properly and deeply and come to healthy conclusions. I don't believe the preacher is telling us to reject philosophy as a discipline outright, but this narrator is saying that the words we've read in the book of Ecclesiastes, these are some of the high point of human thinking. Maybe one way to illustrate the perils of our intellectual pursuits that we're being warned about here is to uh, remind you of C.S. Lewis' book, The Great Divorce, a novel that sort of deals with themes of heaven and hell. And you may remember there's one character, he's from the suburbs of hell, and he claims himself to be a lifelong seeker of the truth. He wanders towards heaven, and he has an encounter with the Spirit, and the Spirit says, I promise you, uh, no scope for your talents, only forgiveness for having perverted them, no atmosphere for inquiry, for I will bring you to a land not of questions, but of answers, and you shall see the face of God. And what does this seeker of truth say back to the Spirit? He's interested in the Spirit's claim, but he says, we all must interpret those beautiful words in our own way. For me, there's no such thing as a final answer. The free wind of inquiry must always continue to blow through the mind, must it not? 
This sounds quite intellectual, sounds quite savvy. But the Spirit replies, listen, once you were a child, once you knew what inquiry was for, there was a time when you asked questions because you wanted answers and were glad when you found them. Become that child again, even now. But the seeker, he refuses. He says, when I became a man, I put away childish things. And then almost in the midst of his reply, he realizes he is late for an appointment, that there is a discussion group waiting for him in hell. Lewis beautifully illustrates the narrator's point here at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, of the peril of our intellectual pursuits. The peril is this. It's possible to start racing for wisdom and get lost somewhere on the path and catch, spend the rest of your life running in circles, never coming closer to the ending. And this is good for us to hear. Ours is a sort of arrogant age where we claim ignorance, but in such an arrogant way. We say religious questions are too hard and they exhaust us and no one can really know the answer. Therefore, there is no answer that can be really known. And this approach to tough questions becomes self-justifying because we think hard questions are hard to, because, uh, sorry, these questions are hard to think about. We assume God cannot be known. How could God be known if it requires such intellectual rigor, such difficult questions to work through? Listen, it's possible to ask intellectual questions in such a way that you will dig yourself into a hole of despair. There is a type of sophistry that exists in our world that is even praised, and it comes across as humble, but is phenomenally arrogant. When we have the path of wisdom, the preacher is saying, we will walk down it. He has given to us the path of wisdom, and he's saying, be careful. There are other paths out there, and of the making of many books, there is no end. Be content with the wisdom you found here. It is given, not just from a wise man, but from the one shepherd. Well, if this is the peril of our intellectual pursuits, we have to ask then, what is the purpose of our intellectual pursuits? And the purpose is given in verses 13 and 14. What a grand conclusion to this book. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is the purpose of our intellectual pursuits. And it may be summarized this way. It's not what you know. It's not how much you know, but it's who you know. That is what all of our intellectual pursuits are aimed towards, are oriented towards. The purpose of our intellectual pursuits is to know our limits and to know our creator, the God who made us. This is the conclusion of the long journey the preacher has had us on. This journey where we have been exploring all these ways to find the good life, to pursue life hacks through pleasure and power and work and status and fame, all the ways in which we can insulate ourselves from the frustrating nature of life. The preacher is saying, I've tried them all. And really, it all just comes down to this, though. This is God's world. And you have to come to the place where you believe this is his world. And his ways are immensely different than ours. Our brain lacks the computing power to understand how he puts the pieces together. But we know one thing, and that is this, that he is much smarter than us. He cannot be tricked. He will bring all things into judgment. And so the good life, even though we live in this vaporous world, is ultimately found in fearing him. Now, this isn't fear like a bad dream, like the terror of monsters under the bed, of some kind of phobia. No, this is more of a posture, a posture of reverence. 
That feeling that you get when the judge walks into court and everyone stands up and respects the judge for the role that that she or he plays with the gown on. Maybe I could illustrate it this way. I don't know why I didn't find this earlier in the pandemic, but I'm sure some of you know the British poet John Donne, famous British pastor who was the pastor of St. Paul's Cathedral London, the dean of St. Paul's Cathedral London, and he pastored during the bubonic plague. And despite his incredible intellect and having access to incredible wealth, he felt called to stay in the city of London during the plague. Being in the city was a terrifying experience. Historians estimate that over a thousand people were dying a day for many, many days. But he felt called to stay in the city and to work with those who were sick and dying. Until eventually he became sick. He was quarantined, isolated to a hospital bed, separated from his books, even his Bible. And in the midst of this isolation, despite his Cambridge doctorate and his incredible intellect, he began being consumed by the question of why. Why did God allow this to happen? Was he judging uh, Pastor Dunn? Was he judging the world? And there were no answers to these why questions that were coming to his head, and he was finding himself consumed by fear. And as he lay in bed, fear, full of fear, consumed by fear, his, Bible, his mind raced through all of, of the passages in the Bible de- dealing with fear that he could recall from memory. And he realized that all of life's circumstances demand something of some sort of fear. And this is why the Bible frequently calls upon us to fear not. And yet at the same time, it tells us to fear the Lord. John Donne realized that he was being called not to erase fear from his life, but to properly orient his fear, to lift up all of his fears towards the Lord. And he prayed this prayer. Listen closely. Give me, O Lord, as he sat on his sickbed, give me, O Lord, a fear of which I may not be afraid. And with this, the why questions begin to find their place. He compared his experience after this to the change in his attitude he felt towards the attending physicians. He said initially as they probed him for new symptoms and discussed in hushed tones outside of his room his uh, diagnoses, he was extremely afraid. But eventually he learned to trust them because he saw their compassionate concerns for him. He realized he was going through the same process in his relationship with God. He didn't understand God's methods or his reasons behind them, but he learned to trust God as the great physician, and a proper fear of God supplanted all of his other fears. John Donne actually survived. He didn't actually have uh, the plague. He had a different disease. He recorded this experience in a book called Devotions Upon an Emergent Occasions. And from this work, one of the most well-known works in Western literature, we get phrases like, no man is an island and the phrase and the story from For Whom the Bells Toll. This is how we're to face the vaporous life, though, with a proper fear, which is like a deep reverence and awe that is rooted in trust. God's methods, reasons, and approach are beyond our understanding, but He will make all things right. And even now, what that means is, despite the presence of injustice in the world, despite the feeling of the frustrating nature of this world, despite the fact that it seems like the bad guys win and the good guys come in last, everything matters. Even what we do in the quiet of our own heart, because the Lord will bring everything into judgment in His time. All we have to do is trust. Trust that He is good, 
and that his timeline is good. Now, what does this mean? Well, let me turn it to you. What are you afraid of? What do you find yourself chasing your tail about? What has you so distracted you live your life at a frenetic pace? You can't live with such scattered and distracted lives and a healthy and proper fear of the Lord. This passage is telling us to put fear of the Lord first in your life. Obey His commands and make it the fear over all other fears. This is the essence of faith. And this is what the book of Ecclesiastes has been calling us to. The one who has all the answers. The ones whose plans are working out perfectly. He is the one to obey. And even when your instincts tell you you know better, even when your mind tells you you have a better plan, this is faith, to trust Him. And how much easier is this for us, the people who live on this side of the resurrection, that moment when the one to whom we are called to fear sent His Son into this world to live a life of constant fear, proper fear and obedience towards our God. And Jesus Christ, in the middle of history, experienced that divine and final judgment that all of humanity had been waiting for. And in the face of that judgment, He was resurrected and declared righteous. And God is beginning the process of making all things right in and through Him. How much easier should it be for us to fear, knowing that the God who will judge is the one who judged Christ. And in Christ, we are invited to taste and experience the judgment He received in the middle of history as our judgment, which will be fully and finally declared at the final day of history. The call of this book, the call of this passage is to deeply invest your faith and trust in the God who watches over this world. This is a world filled with a vaporous feel. And yet into this vaporous feel, we are a people who trust that our God has brought about a resurrection. Let's pray.